So Jesus, we ask that you help us understand that and apply it to our lives and be more like you. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hello, 945. Good to see you. Happy uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, as anyone who has driven in downtown Seattle knows, there are places where the roads can be kind of wacky. And there's a reason for that. It's because they are actually the result of a drunken disagreement, the grid that was laid out. Originally in a meeting, there, there, one of the city founders named Doc Maynard, who the history books say was, quote, uh, inspired by liquor, uh, wanted, wanted the, wanted the uh, streets to run north-south, but other planners wanted them to run along the hills. And so they just ended up deciding to do both. And so you get these places like Yesler Way and Denny Way where the streets come in at these kind of crazy angles. But fortunately, later, someone tried to bring a little bit of order to that kind of mismanaged chaos by naming the streets in downtown so that every two streets would start with the same letter. Because that'll help a whole lot, right? <laughs> like, that really makes a difference. And so, so you get, like, Jefferson, James, Cherry, Columbia, Marion, Madison, and so on. And fortunately, there's also a little handy mnemonic to remember those streets by. Jesus Christ made Seattle under protest. <laughs> Which I think is just like this weird image, right? Like, no, I will not make it. It's too rainy there. I refuse. The last couple of weeks, we've been reading the Bible alongside the history of King County because in Scripture, what God has been doing in a region is often a clue what he wants to keep doing in that region as well as in your life and mine. And this area has always been a place of rebels like Doc Maynard. And God loves to choose rebels and redirect all that rebellious energy toward good, toward making all things new. And we are all rebels in one way or another, so that's what he wants to do in our lives. Our country got its start in rebellion. Uh, many of us are descended from people who didn't like what was going on in their home countries, so they came here looking for a better life. Rebels. But those of us, many of us on the West Coast, we're even more rebellious than the rebellious because some of our ancestors, once they got to America, they looked around and they said, no, New Jersey is not the promised land. And they just kept going, right, and created the wild, wild west. You guys are so much more awake than 9 o'clock. Thank you. <laughs> just got to tell you, it just feels so good. So uh, they just kept going and developed the wild, wild west. In the early days of Seattle, there were up to 500 women living near Pioneer Square who listed their occupation as seamstresses. 500. That's a lot of sewing. That is not what they were doing. In fact, they were led by a woman named Mother Damnable. Isn't that, if I get a dog, that's going to be the name, right? <laughs> It'd be cool when you call it in, or the neighbors would think weird thoughts. Right? And Mother Damnable insisted that vice was essential for the Seattle economy. The first business in Issaquah was a distillery that paid its workers in kegs of beer. Some of you are like, is it still there? <laughs> That'd be awesome. Redmond was one of the wildest towns in Washington. There were more saloons than any other kind of business. So when Prohibition came, the city nearly collapsed because of lack of tax revenue because all the saloons were gone. But fear not, the Redmond shoe stores came up with a solution. For a little bit extra cash, they would slip some moonshine into the shoe box and you could take it home with you. I just... A little hooch with your pumps, man? That'd be awesome. <laughs> it's just this rebel, you Redmondites, man, you just are crazy people. But then, on the other side, there were people who were trying to clean up all this vice, like, uh, like uh, Seattle's Bertha Landis, who in the 20s became the first mayor, uh, female mayor of Seattle and uh, in the country. And she was so fiery, her nickname was Big Bertha. 
You know, just like the tunnel boring machine, only the Mayor Bertha actually worked. That's the difference. And it was actually originally, it was originally a gun that was used by the Germans to shell Paris 70 miles away. So that gives you a it kind of indication of her personality. In fact, here's a picture. I would not mess with her. I mean, she means serious, serious business. When she was deputy mayor, uh, the mayor was on vacation one day, and so she uh, decided to close all the speak, fired the police chief, closed all the speakeasies and gambling joints. The mayor had to rush back from his vacation to make it, you know, back to normal. And then later, when she became mayor, two years later, on her second day in office, she called a meeting of the chief of police, the sheriff, the captain of the Coast Guard, and the papers said these men went into her offices as lions, and they came out transformed into lambs. <laughs> that was Bertha. We are a rebellious people here on the West Coast. But most of the people in the Bible are rebellious as well. Moses is a murderer, David commits adultery and murder, John the Baptist ate locusts and was just weird, and, and the prophet Ezekiel, I've said before, had such a dirty mouth that there are portions of the Bible that I cannot read in church because I would get so many emails for reading the Bible in church. God loves the heart of a rebel because that energy redirected changes the world. And of course, the biggest, greatest rebel of all is Jesus. So when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today, the crowd said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And there is one word in that line that is so explosive. King and kingdom. Jesus uses that word more than any other word. And at the time, the Israelites had been oppressed for centuries by the Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and finally the Romans. And they wanted their kingdom back. And all around the streets that day were armed rebels just ready for a signal from Jesus to start an insurrection against Rome. But the kingdom Jesus brings is even more radical, more revolutionary than they could imagine. And last week we looked at Luke chapter 5. Today we're looking at the very next chapter to kind of understand the kind of kingdom that Jesus brings. And here's my main point. There is a revolution Jesus wants to do in you, and then there's a revolution he wants to do through you, use you to do a revolution here in King County. Now, immediately after the story we looked at last week, just for context, Jesus next has a series of confrontations with the religious leaders. He heals on the Sabbath day, which was against religious tradition. He hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors and seamstresses, right? He was just, just a, a rebel. And the section ends with the line, but the Pharisees were furious. The Greek word there means senseless rage. See, religious people have always been a problem for God. And we who go to church would do well to remember that religious people have always been a problem for God. And then it says Jesus went to a mountainside to pray, which is revolutionary, because revolutionaries usually hid in mountains. So he's sort of saying, he's signaling, guys, I'm talking about a revolution here. And then, he, then the next thing he does, the text says, is he chooses his co-revolutionaries, a.k.a. disciples. And the text says he chose Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, and John, let me pause right there. You know, these are not religious or business leaders. They're fishermen, probably illiterate, and we know for sure rough around the edges. Peter, for instance, we know had a very, very foul mouth. At, at one point, he you know, calls down curses all over the place. So we know that they're kind of rough around the edges. James and John were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Care to guess why? Because they were jerks. At one point, they tried to call down fire from heaven to destroy a village that didn't like their preaching. 
Right? Like that's, that's a little, taking it a little hard, right? Like, you know, bad email and you tried to call down fire from heaven. Next on the list, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew. Second red flag, Matthew. Tax collector. White-collar criminal who collaborated with the occupying Roman army to overcharge his fellow Jews on taxes and pocket the difference. Think Bernie Madoff. <laughs> okay, but it just keeps getting worse from there. Next comes Thomas, whose claim to fame is that the critical moment he doubts Jesus, earning him the nickname Doubting Thomas forever. Like, how'd you like it if for 2,000 years you were remembered only by your biggest screw-up, right? Like, that would, that would suck. Next comes James, son of Alphaeus, who doesn't ever do anything. Simon, who is called the zealot. Oh, such a nice word, zealot. You know what that means? Terrorist. He was a terrorist. Advocated the violent overthrow of Rome. And the people he hated even worse than Romans were tax-collecting Jews, like Matthew, who he's now in a small group with. And then, saving the worst for last, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Let me get this straight. Terrorists, illiterate, foul-mouthed fishermen, white-collar corporate criminals, and a traitor. You do not want Jesus as your HR guy. He hires all the wrong people. <laughs> Every single one of these guys, in one way or another, are rebels, bad, bad boys, smoking in the boys' room. And Jesus channels that rebellious energy toward the most radical revolution ever. See, all the other revolutionaries in history, they just, all they want, fine-tune what exists. Put the revolutionaries in charge instead of someone else. That's not a revolution. Jesus brings a radical, upside-down kingdom, which he announces in what's known as the Beatitudes, which Rich just read. And he says, blessed are, and I'm going to stop right there, because those two words are the revolution. See, the world says... First, you've got to obey, achieve, and do a bunch of stuff, and then you're blessed and loved. Jesus says, no, 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 you are blessed and loved first. And out of that, you then become who I created you to be. So blessed are you who are poor. In Matthew's version, it's the poor in spirit. But he means both poor of purse, poor of spirit, those who feel afflicted for any reason at all. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, but really it's the Sermon from the Valley. Where low is high and high is low. And this is the revolution Jesus wants to do in you and me, and that is he wants to change the scorecard of our culture in order to set you and me free. So if our culture had Beatitudes, what would they be? They'd probably be something like this. Blessed are those who make it to the top, because they can look down on everyone else. Blessed are those who take first place in the division, for they shall have momentum going into the playoffs. <laughs> Blessed are the good-looking, because they don't mind being seen in a bathing suit, and on and on and on. The writer David Brooks talks about how increasingly in our culture, fame is one of the most desired qualities. And they did a study where they asked people, would you rather be president of Harvard or Justin Bieber's personal assistant? By a three-to-one margin, people would rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant than president of Harvard. And, and, and Brooks said, now, to be fair, though, I asked the president of Harvard, and she'd rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant. <laughs> Power. Comfort, success, approval of others, that's our culture's scorecard. But Jesus flips that scorecard. When he says, blessed are the poor, they don't have any power. Blessed are you who hunger, they don't have any comfort. Blessed are you when people hate you, they don't have people's approval. He's looking at the folks who do not measure up according to the culture's scorecard. Neither, though, do they measure up with the holiness, churchy, churchy, religious crowd. Now, Important caveat before I go any further. This does not mean 
This does not mean that Jesus wants us all to be sad, pathetic little losers. No, that's not what these mean. Sometimes that's how they get read. Right? That, that was sort of the philosopher Nietzsche's great complaint against Christianity is it kept us from being what he called in German Ubermensch, supermen. Right? No, nobody is out to squelch your inner Ubermensch or Uberfräulein. The Beatitudes are not prescriptive, not stuff we're supposed to go do and be. They're descriptive. Even if you find yourself poor, even if you find yourself mourning, even there you're blessed. See, contrary to the scorecard of our culture, Jesus says you can be blessed no matter what because I'm with you. And what that means is that Jesus is not out to make you weak. He's out to make you free. He's out to make you free. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a young guy who's super successful in his career, makes a lot of money, and he was telling me how much he always tries to impress people and how stressful it is to be always doing that. And he said, what's sad is, even as I'm telling you this, I'm trying to impress you with how in touch I am with how much I try to impress people. And he said, I mean, that is just sick, right? As I tell the pastor how screwed up I am, I'm trying to impress him with how screwed up I am. How screwed up is that? <laughs> I said, you are meta-screwed up, right? Like an infinite regress of screwed up. And I said, but man, I am in it with you. I am, I am constantly trying to impress other people, and I worry about what they think. Right? And he said, well, how do we get out of it? I said, we've got to let Jesus switch our scorecard. The revolution Jesus wants to do in us is to free us from all scorecard, our cultures, but also the churches, which can be no better, right? Do more, work harder. No, no, no. Jesus' revolution is that we experience his presence, and that slowly over time sets us free from every scorecard. We may be wealthy. We may be successful. We may have accolades. We may have all those things. It's just that we don't, we're not controlled by them. We neither seek them nor run from them. We are just free. See, it's about defiance. It's about saying to our culture and to the devil, you do not get to set the scorecard. Culture, you do not get to define how I measure myself or how I feel about myself. I deny you that victory. I will not march to your drumbeat. I will follow the voice of my Savior as he molds my character to give me eulogy virtues rather than resume virtues. Here's the difference. Resume, that's what, you know, your job, your accomplishments, money, blah, blah, blah. No one talks about that stuff at a funeral, right? Your character, eulogy virtues, your character, your heart, how you helped other people, who you loved and who loved you. Jesus wants to free us to live for those kinds of things. And the only scorecard Jesus has for you and me is that we become who he created us to be. He is never going to say to you, why weren't you more like so-and-so? Why weren't you wealthy like so-and-so or successful like so-and-so? He'll never say that. He'll simply say, why weren't you you? Why weren't you the you I created you to be? The only scorecard he has for you is that you become the you he created you to be. And the only way we can do that is through his power. The text says that people all tried to touch him because power was coming from and healing them. His power sets us free. And you know, sometimes you see that in the Beatitudes. Sometimes when you read these things, you get so hung up on the first part, blessed are the poor, the meek, the lowly, and you're like, Ugh, I don't want that. But we forget the second part. Blessed are you who hunger, for you will be satisfied. Even when you, we are poor or mourn, Jesus will meet us and we can be satisfied. One night this week, I just could not get to sleep worrying about all kinds of things, sermons, issues, problems, all kinds of stuff. And, and at night, man, things always just seem so much worse to me. You know? and, and so I'm laying there, and you know, I, was, I was all the way down to getting fired and living in a tent in Wapato. I mean, 
you know, I was well down the road. And, and do, do any of you ever do that? Am I the only, no one, I am the only one? You do it. Okay, great. Ryan does it. Okay, you and we're together in that, right? So anyway, I'm all the way down, and I'm in Wapato in the tent, and, 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 and suddenly I had this picture in my head, just popped in my head, of God just towering over me, and he was shaking the bed, and he said, have I ever let you down? And I was like, well, no, yet, anyway, you know. And, and he was kind of mad, like he was mad, and somehow it was strangely comforting to me that he was, that he was kind of, it was like a forehead slap, and God going, Fix your crazy, Dudley. Come on, man. And it was somehow, I mean, I couldn't sleep even after that. I still couldn't sleep for a while. But I felt satisfied. I felt like God was with me. He was paying attention to me. And that's all I really wanted. And then I started to realize that really what was the issue was I was worried what other people were thinking about me. And then, you know, and then I remembered this week's sermon, which is about not worrying about what other people think about you. And <laughs> I just hate when that happens. You know, always live it out, which is... Got to do that sermon on what, how to handle a million dollars. Time for that, man. I'm tired of living these. Blessed is not when everything is going my way. Blessed is whenever he is with me. And as we begin to get that over time, we begin to get free of the scorecard and live life with reckless abandon. Freedom. There's a billionaire named Chuck Feeney who started the duty-free shop. He's trying to give all of his money away to, the, to, to folks in need. He has given $6 billion away. He has $1 billion more to go. He wears a $15 bracelet and has a plastic bag for a briefcase. And he says, my goal is I want the last check I write to bounce. <laughs> he is free, not worrying about what others think. He is having so much fun, blessing people all around him. I mean, he's free. No scorecards, he's just free. And some of you are thinking, wow, I am bouncing checks right now. I'm already there. I'm free too. It's just the bank doesn't think I'm free. So here, I love you guys. You are the best congregation. <laughs> so here's the question. By how you spend your time, money, and by what you worry about, what scorecard are you living to? Connect with Jesus so he can begin to set you free and live to his audience of one where he says, all I want for you is that you become you. And as we do that, that's the revolution Jesus wants to do in you. And as we do that, we then become part of the next thing. And that is the revolution Jesus wants to do through you and me to change King County. In Matthew's version of this story, after the Beatitudes, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And that word city was explosive because at the time, there was one city that dominated the, the entire Western world, Rome. And its highest ideals were power and self-glorification. Just like the first city in the Bible, Babel where they say, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, right? We want this tower to make a name for ourselves. It's like the first Donald Trump building, you know? But that's the foundation of every single human city. Ego, power, shoving out the other guy to get ahead. And the only way to change that is as we begin to live to no scorecard at all, but just to Jesus, and become free, and then we move into the city, our offices, our schools, our neighborhoods, and we live out that kind of new kingdom, that kind of free, that kind of no scorecard life that Jesus wants to give, and it changes the people around us, which is why Jesus went straight into the heart of Jerusalem to live a different kind of life. And he says to you, and he says to me, Bell Press, 
in your schools, offices, neighborhoods. You are a city within a city, a city of grace in a world built on keeping score, a city of justice in a world where people use their power to shove out the other guy and get ahead, a city of servants when everyone else is asking what's in it for me, a city where work isn't just about me earning money and prestige, but it's about using my skills and my gifts to develop things that help people live, work, or play. And when we are that alternate city within the city, living free of the scorecards, we are saying to the devil, you can't have our cities. You don't get to make the rules. You don't get to set the scorecards. Jesus does. You say you want a revolution. This is the revolution Jesus wants to bring, changing you and me from the inside out as we go into the places where we are every week to change those places too. Maybe that means, asking, uh, maybe that means making your workplace more just simply by advocating for people on the margins. Maybe it's just to have lunch with that person no one seems to like. I heard about a woman recently who looked up a guy on, from college on Facebook to apologize for something she had done decades earlier. When he asked her why, she said, Jesus. Next Sunday he was in church trying to figure out who this Jesus was that would motiv motivate such a counterculture deed. Maybe it's just to be an encourager where you are. Maybe that's how you change the atmosphere around you. You know, we all face so many discouragements and, you know, people say harsh things, crit criticisms and, you know, those emails and all that. And sometimes it's helpful critique. A lot of times it's just complaint. And the devil loves to use those things that we hear every day to just erode our sense of confidence and hope and joy. Don't participate with what he's trying to do, the devil. My wife has this great saying, you know, don't be a tool of Satan. And, and I'll let you figure out when she uses that phrase. But, you know... <laughs> Don't be a tool of Satan. You know, it's, it's, it's just a great mission statement, right? Like you get up every morning, you look in the mirror, and you go, let's not be a tool of Satan today. You know, I'm not going to pass on all this negativity. I'm going to change what's around me. I'm going to live Jesus' revolution where I am. So here's your homework. Two questions. First, judging by how you spend your time, money, and what you worry about, what's your scorecard? And then this Holy Week especially, turn to Jesus Maybe go to all three of those services, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, and let Jesus begin to change that in you. And then the second question, what is your prayer for your city, workplace, school, neighborhood? What is your prayer for that place? And how might Jesus use you to be part of the answer to that prayer? Recently heard about a man named Bob who was a very successful businessman. And on his way to work every day, he, he passes by this rundown ball field, a lot of litter, a lot of gang activity. Well, one day, driving in as normal, Jesus nudged him, and he had a thought he hadn't thought before. And that was, I bet those kids could use a little league team. So a few days later, he asked some of the kids if they wanted to play, and they said sure. And first practices were kind of rough, a lot of shoving, cussing, pushing. I mean, these kids are rebels, right? But it grew until they had 250 boys. And now every game begins with prayer. There's no cussing. They, sh they have to show respect to their opponents, and, and they talk about the difference between being a man and being a boy. And Bob said, you know, Bob says, I, I have no illusions that I'm changing the world. But I do know that Jesus wants me to play baseball with these kids. Today they have 900 kids, many of them fatherless, many lacking resources, who now have father figures helping them learn self-respect and community values and all of that. And a reporter asked Bob, well, why would a wealthy businessman spend so much time in a poor neighborhood? And Bob said, well... Jesus didn't say when you pay someone to serve the least of these. He said when you serve the least of these, you've done it unto me. And he says, besides, it's fun. Bob's free of the scorecard. He doesn't care what anyone thinks. 
He is free of the scorecard, and he is moving to the places where God has put him to make a difference and free people there as well. The revolution that Jesus did in him became the revolution that Jesus is doing through him, and that's what he wants to do with you and me. You don't have to start a little league team. But as we go into holy, what's your scorecard? And ask Jesus to begin to change it. And what is your prayer for your city, workplace, school, neighborhood? And how might God want to use you to answer that prayer right where you are? Simply by being that alternate city wherever he's placed you. So that we're not slavishly, slavishly serving our culture, but we are defiantly free transforming our cities one heart, one block, one office, one school at a time until his kingdom comes and his will get done on earth as it is in heaven. You say you want a revolution? This is it. We march to our culture's tune no more. So Jesus, help us to do that, marching only to your call on our lives. Free us of the scorecard. Do that revolution in us so that you can do that revolution through us where you have put us all week long. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And there I stood overlooking the cities. It was overcast and the skies broke above my head. The Spirit of God breathed on me and my eyes were opened. And I saw a beautiful view, a holy place, where there is no difference between the lakeside and downtown. Where men and women lived wholeheartedly flourishing as family and neighbor. And I saw people that were satisfied with what they had, and those that had plenty, giving generously to those that had needs. And I saw a new way of working, where profit meant more than the bottom line, where value was understood as much more than price. I saw vendors that took responsibility for their mistakes and who followed through on their promises. I looked out and I saw there was no more loneliness or bullying in schools. Where individuals embraced exactly who they were created to be. And people rejoiced in each other's differences. Where division ceased. And God showed me the center of downtown and there was no more homelessness or economic injustice. Everyone walked in safety and it was a place of peace. This is what I saw looking over the cities. And though it was just a vision, I'm beginning to see it now, and I believe in it now. Mm -hmm.